We're going to finish up this morning our series on what it means to be a hospital for the hurting. And if you happen to have missed one of the four sermons, this is number four, but if you missed any of the previous three, let me urge you to go back and listen to it online. Because I'm convinced that this is one of the most important series that we've done in the life of this church in recent years. In fact, it's our best effort as a pastoral staff to clearly communicate where we see God at work in the life of this church at this particular time among this particular group of people. And we really hope and have been prayerful that what we say resonates in your heart. In such a way that you embrace where we see God at work and you engage in that life of ministry that I believe that he's called us to as a church body. I think of it a little bit like reading a job description for you before you go and apply for a job. You want to kind of know what you're signing up for before you make the commitment, right? And even once you've made the commitment, it's important to go back and look at that job description to better understand what it is that you've been called and asked to do well in the same way God has been very clear about his job description for the church thankfully he made it simple go therefore and make disciples the calling of our church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ and actually it's a, it's a shared responsibility among every Christian church throughout the world and, and yet within that global mission that applies to us all is the unique responsibility of a local congregation. We always want to go and make disciples, but we also want to be careful to care for those disciples in different and unique ways. Caring enough, as we've been talking about, caring enough to, to hear the story to know the story of, of their life and, and loving enough to be willingly engaged and meaningfully engaged in that story with them. What we've been talking about here and what you will hear again this morning is, is what it means to create a culture of compassion. A, a culture based on the conviction, a shared conviction that we all have one thing in common. We all need Jesus. Amen? We need Jesus to do a redemptive work in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our world. We need to be rescued. We need to be restored. We need to be redeemed. We need Jesus. As Brian taught us, a couple of weeks ago, we need Jesus as that great physician, the only source of the right remedy for our broken lives. There is no other place to turn. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Apart from life in Christ, we fall apart. As Augustine once said, he said, our hearts our souls are restless until we find rest in Him. 
And for those who've experienced the, the healing that that salvation brings, we now have a story to tell. I want you to think about how terrible it would be if one of us actually found the cure for cancer, a disease that affects so many of the people we love, and yet in knowing that cure, we decided to keep it a secret. How terrible would that be? And yet we know through the gospel of Jesus Christ the cure for sin's curse. We know the right remedy from the work of God through the power of the cross to redeem broken lives. The source of forgiveness, the source of hope, the source of life. So why in the world would we ever want to keep that a secret? We should be compelled to tell that story. As Bruce admonished us, the gospel in you should work through you to the people around you. Both near, those who are in your neighborhood, those who live next door, those who are in your workplace, those who are in your classroom, but also far to those unreached people groups that still exist in our world today. Bruce talked about how that hospital for the hurting should be like a mass unit. Remember that? That's like a mobile hospital that that takes our care to people who are in crisis. And like a mass unit, the goal is to serve and equip and love them in a way that they can be sent back into battle. That they can engage in life having been strengthened and equipped for what lies ahead. Because here's the reality For every single person in this room, this side of heaven, myself included, we all live in one of two realities. We are either preparing for the suffering that is one day to come, or we are trying to learn how to persevere in the midst of it. At any given moment in time, we are either in the process of preparing to endure suffering well, or we are trying to figure out how to persevere in the midst of it. One of those two realities in any given moment describes our life this side of heaven. So what we want to think about and consider together this morning is how do you prepare well to endure suffering? And if you're in the midst of it, how do you persevere? Well, let's uh, go to the Lord together before we look at that. Fathers, we come to, before you this morning. We want to do so humbly. We confess together that we need you. That we have that need in common. We need Jesus. We need the power of the cross, the forgiveness and hope that was made possible to invade our lives to invade our marriages, to invade our families, to invade this world. And we recognize that that takes place through your people. We've been called to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world, both near and far, and that we might live a life that proclaims the message of the gospel and the healing that is only found in you. Lord, help us grow in that understanding this morning as we open your word. 
Amen. If you want to, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But before we go there, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of what it means to prepare well to endure suffering. And I want to begin by describing some of the most common strategies in our world today that you will find both outside and inside the church. For example, if you want to avoid the pain, the suffering that comes with financial loss, then you need to find protection in financial security. You need to make wise investments. You need to budget successfully. You need to save sufficiently. If you're a Christian, basically you need to do everything Dave Ramsey tells you to do in order to have financial peace. Okay? And speaking of financial peace, if you want to avoid emotional distress, you've got to have fun. You need to pursue a hobby. You need to take a vacation. Read a good book. Go watch a, a good movie. Minimize stress by doing the things you love. But always within reason. Because if you want to have a life that's free of the suffering that comes from illness then you have to have a healthy balance. You need to exercise more. You need to eat less. Some people use essential oil. Some people have a, a gluten-free diet. Some people say never, ever eat GMOs. I have no idea what that is, but I hear it's really important. My, my point is that these are strategies that we employ to avoid suffering in our life, and they're not bad. They're really not. In fact, there's some great advice in there. But here's the key. If we're looking to those strategies as our source of comfort, then it's only going to make our suffering worse when our strategies don't work. Because added to our suffering is the loss of identity, the loss of security, that we placed in our plans. The bottom line is we cannot put our hope in our ability to make life work. Because here's the reality that we have all experienced. Despite, despite our best strategies, our health fails. No fault of our own, we get cancer experience divorce we lose someone we love unexpectedly there are times in life and i know this well that we feel completely overwhelmed paralyzed fear or anxiety we have to understand there's got to be a better way, a place to find hope in something that's bigger than us, someone that's bigger than us, someone who doesn't get confused, someone who is never overwhelmed, someone whose plan never, ever fails. See, self-sufficiency and independence, which are qualities in our culture that are highly prized, but I need to tell you something this morning, and I'm convinced it's true, 
It is a delusion. See, suffering has a way of revealing what has always been true. We are utterly and completely dependent upon God. Apart from life in Christ, we cannot make life work on our own. So, let me encourage you with this. As you try to navigate life, don't fear the insecurity of your weaknesses. Fear the delusion of your strength. Don't fear the insecurity of your weaknesses. Fear the delusion of your strength. And here's why. The Bible is very clear. You can have hope in your weaknesses. You will be consistently disappointed in the provision of your strength. Let me give you an example of how Paul unpacks this truth. Chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. Begin reading with me in verse 7. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. And concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Let me pause there and notice that in verse 7, Paul mentions twice that what is happening, this suffering experience, was to keep him from exalting himself. In other words, it kept him from trusting in his own personal strategy to make life work. That thorn was a reminder to Paul that he's not in control. And I know there's a lot of speculation about what that thorn might have been, what illness it could have been, or what situation he might have been in. But really, it's not the main point. More important than what it is, is what it does. Obviously, it causes a level of frustration because we see in this passage that he repeatedly asked for it to be removed. In some way, it limits his capacity it keep, keeps him from doing things that he really wants to do and I would expect if it's Paul that they're good things that he's not capable of doing because this thorn in the flesh is somehow inhibiting him what we know is it is some kind of a, a physical affliction caused by Satan with evil intent but the suffering it created was used by God for a redemptive purpose. Instead of removing the problem, God revealed His grace in the midst of it. And Paul is saying that that weakness prevented him from pridefully depending upon his own strength. It taught him to trust in God and, and not rely on himself because himself is re unreliable. He had to look beyond his limitations to something bigger than him. And, and look at what that is in verse 9. And he said to me, God, speaking into the heart of Paul, says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I would rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness with insult, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. Now I want to point out the power of the gospel in Paul's life. And let me describe that power in this way. It is God's ability to use painful suffering to bring about a redemptive good. That's the power of the gospel at work in the life of Paul. It's God's ability to use painful suffering to bring about a redemptive good. Instead of removing the problem, God revealed His grace in the midst of it. And as we think about that power, I want us to first remember how it played itself out at the cross. Because as you know, Satan moved in the hearts of men to convince them to crucify Jesus Christ on the cross. It was an evil attempt to put an end to the redemptive plan of God to rescue the souls of man. That was the pure intent of the enemy. We know in order to carry that out, he deceived the religious leaders into believing that they were doing something good. And his plan worked because he leveraged their pride. You see, Jesus was a threat to the strategies employed by the religious leaders. That religious system that they religiously followed was an attempt to make life work on their terms. It was a man-made effort to be righteous in the sight of God. A system that ultimately exalted themselves to the point they didn't see a need for a Savior. Let me just tell you this morning, what is true for them is equally true for us. We will not see a need for a Savior if we are successfully managing life on our own. And yet, what Satan intended for evil, God used for good. The death that so many expected to be the end, to finish the threat, to eliminate the problem, actually opened the doors to new life, a new beginning. Because... In his death, Jesus Christ took the punishment for our sins. He ultimately fulfilled the promise of redemption made by God from the very beginning. We also know that through his resurrection, Jesus broke the power of sin's control so that we could have eternal life. And I would suggest to you this morning, that's the part that Satan didn't see coming. To use what he intended to put an end to actually be the source of a new beginning. What he didn't see is that God worked through the weakness, the weakness of Christ's humanity in order to release the power of divine blessing. I want you to see the scripture proclaim that truth. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4 where it says, For indeed he, Jesus, was crucified because of Weakness. Yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we shall live with him because of the power of God directed towards us. 
we live ultimately not by our own strength, but by the power of God directed toward us. That's why Paul can say the God's power is perfected in his weakness. When I'm weak, he says, that's when I'm strong. Our hope is not in our self-sufficiency. It's in our surrender. It's looking beyond our limitations to someone much bigger than us. God works through our weakness to release the power of his divine blessing. And here's why that's important as we think about what it means to prepare for suffering. We suffer, and that suffering is shaped more by what is happening in us than what is happening to us. Let me say that again. Our suffering is shaped more by what is happening in us than anything that is happening to us. The battleground is our heart. And if we're trusting in our own strength, the weight of suffering will crush us. We cannot bear up underneath it. But if we're relying on God, His grace is sufficient. And that's a promise. His power is made evident in our weakness. That's why Paul writes earlier, if you want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Verse 8, listen to what he says. He says, we were afflicted in every way, but not crushed under the weight of it. We were afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Listen to why. He says, always carrying about in our body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in us. In other words, they didn't boast in all that they were doing for God. They were rejoicing in all that God was doing in them. Because even in their suffering, God's power is at work to bring about a redemptive good. That's the power of the gospel. In fact, the very same grace that saved them would be the power that now sustains them. The power of the gospel put on display in their lives. Here's the key for us as we walk out of here this morning. The more we learn to live in willing dependence upon God and our everyday life, the more prepared we are for the day when suffering comes through our door. Knowing his word so that we can cling to his promises. Involved in worship so that we can be clear on his heart. Knowing his people so that we can be comforted by his family. We prepare for suffering by learning to rely on God in our everyday lives. Refusing to make life work on our own and believing in the promise that Jesus said, abide in me. Abide, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I believe that. 
And, and if I believe that, then I am going to that source every day for something I do not possess on my own. And that's the only way when suffering enters my life that I have any ability to endure. Because I rely on something much bigger than I put what I possess on my own. Because somehow, in some way, suffering affects us all. We're in a battle. Suffering affects us all. So let's just spend a little time talking about how do you endure when you're in the midst of it. And I think one of the keys to enduring suffering through perseverance is recognizing suffering as a spiritual battle. I believe that suffering is a spiritual battle. It's a place where we struggle with things like fear and doubt and disappointment and discouragement. Those are real things in the midst of suffering. We fight in our suffering not to allow those things, those emotions, to rule our heart, to, to, to overwhelm our minds. Because we all know the more you think about a problem, what happens? The bigger the problem becomes. Instead, we strive, as the Scripture tells us, to fix our eyes on Jesus. Remember, that's the thing we have in common. That's the thing we need more than anything else in this world, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And let me remind you how he persevered, as we see in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, who for the joy set before him, don't mess that, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus looked beyond his suffering to see a future joy. Now I can assure you, he felt every pain of the crucifixion. Every scorching pain of those nails driven into his hands and his feet, those thorns placed on his head, every ounce of the pain our Savior felt. And yet, even in the midst of it, he was able to look beyond his own suffering to a thief hanging next to him on a cross and invite him into the kingdom that day. Instead of despising the ones who were constantly rebuking him, instead of looking down and seeing them cast insults and growing angry and bitter, he prayed that the Lord would forgive them for they know not what they are doing. He looked beyond his suffering to see a future joy which allowed him to minister in the moment of his deepest pain and agony. I understand as you hear me recall those truths, you probably think to yourselves, yeah, but that's Jesus. <laughs> well, let me draw it a little closer to home then and talk about what it looks like for us. If you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 10, 1 Peter chapter, chapter 5, verse 10. These are the promises that we need to cling to. This is one example in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. It says, and after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you 
to his eternal glory in Christ. Here's the promise. He himself, God himself, in his own hands, not delegated, but performed by his own hands, will perfect you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen and establish you. That is a promise that we must cling to in the midst of our suffering. It's a promise of future joy that helps us persevere. Peter is saying that that same grace that saved you will not only sustain you, it will one day complete you. He's affirming what Paul wrote to the Philippians when he said, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. It's in his hands. It's in accordance with his promise. It will be done. What he started, he will finish. God will perfect what he began. He will confirm what he promised. He will be strong when we are weak. He will be firm when we are fragile. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can stand in the way of our Savior's plan for ultimate good in the lives of those who love him. Nothing. And it's a promise. In order to persevere, we must not lose sight of that hope. Paul will echo this promise of Peter in the letter to the Corinthians. So go back to 2 Corinthians, if you would, and look at chapter 4 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We were there earlier. We're going to look at uh, some later verses in verse 17. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. He says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, I want to encourage you as you read these verses to understand that that Paul in no way is minimizing the reality of our pain. When he says that our suffering is light and momentary, He's not suggesting that it's no big deal. Because of those of us who've been in the midst of suffering, we know there's nothing that feels light or momentary about it in that moment. But instead of minimizing our pain, what Paul is doing is magnifying God's glory. He's not minimizing our pain. He is magnifying God's glory. He doesn't want us to get lost in our suffering and lose sight of the one who sustains us in the midst of it. He's trying to shift our focus by saying, we look not on the things which are seen. Now again, if you've been in any kind of suffering in your life, you know that in the midst of suffering, what do you see? Suffering. That's what you see. You're confronted with that reality every day. Whether that suffering is illness or discouragement, depression, anxiety. It's like the unwelcome neighbor who keeps showing up at your door. You see it every day. But Paul is saying, in order to persevere, you've got to look beyond what you see. To what is unseen. Seeing past the temporary. To what is 
eternal. God wants us to see our suffering in view of his glory. Because what that does is it tells us that no matter how big our suffering might be, our God is bigger still. That way we don't look at life through the lens of our suffering and become overwhelmed by what we see. Instead, we look at our suffering through the lens of what we know to be true of our God and we rest in His faithful provision. One who is perfect. He will fulfill His promise to perfect, to confirm, to strengthen, to establish. There is nothing Listen to me on this. There is nothing. You've got to hold on to this. There is nothing that can ever disrupt God's plan for infinite good in the lives of those who love Him. And yet, we can hear that. Especially if we're not in suffering in the moment, we can almost accept, yeah, I think that's true. The problem, the challenge is, is when you're in the midst of suffering is to actually believe that's true. Believing that suffering somehow produces something in us that the comfortable life we all want never can. Thus, the battle. We struggle to rest in God's sovereign control. And the fact is, we can't do it alone. Turn back, since you're in 2 Corinthians, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So go back a a page or two, and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and listen to what Paul writes here beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You think he's trying to make a point there? (laughs) Verse 5, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. If we are called to be a hospital for the hurting, and I believe we are, then this has to be a safe place for people to find comfort in their time of need. Someone once said that God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. Let me say that again, because that's really important. God does not comfort us to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. You see, there is healing, deep and meaningful healing in a community of comforters. People who are eager to admit that they don't have life figured out, and every time they try to do it on their own, it always comes up short. But instead, we're learning to live in willing and humble dependence upon the one who possesses a power, who possesses an understanding, who possesses a plan that goes far beyond anything we could do on our own. We must be a people who are truly convinced that Jesus is enough. That He is an eternal supply of mercy and grace and forgiveness, and hope. And when we belong to Him, that there is nothing 
that we might experience that ever separates us from that love. Now, Satan will try to convince you differently, especially in the midst of suffering, because we've all dealt with this challenge where we are convinced in our mind that we're going through a hard time because we're being punished for something. Or that somehow God's preoccupied with other people and he's completely forgotten about me. But I need to tell you, based on the authority of God's word, that neither one of those things are true. And the reason I can say the first one isn't true is because the punishment that we all deserve has already been accounted for on the cross. So your suffering is not a result of punishment. The reason I can say the second one is true is because of the testimony of Scripture. He hasn't forgotten you. Because Jesus himself says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am for you. I am with you. God never quits. He never gives up. He never casts his own aside. The psalmist writes, he is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's a reminder we all need to hear. Probably whether we're in the midst of suffering or not. Let's not lose sight of the fact that God often makes his presence known through the lives of his people. God often makes his presence known through you, through the lives of his people. He speaks his truth through the words of his people. His mercy and grace are intended to overflow us into the lives of those around us. Again, as Bruce told us, the gospel in you, working through you to those who are around you. So if we're going to be a hospital for the hurting, let's be committed to creating a culture of compassion, to living as a community of comforters, caring enough to hear someone's story, what was the question you asked uh, in your conversation, Bruce, you said that you often ask? What's been on your heart and mind lately? Excellent question. Because what you're doing is you're inviting them. Tell me your story. And if it's a safe place for them to tell that story, then you have the privilege of coming alongside them in ways that they need somebody to speak truth. To speak hope, to speak love, to be a community of comforters, of people faithfully committed to sharing the unfailing love of Jesus Christ. Let me close with this one thought. So I think about that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. When it says that we experience this momentary affliction, Producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You know what I think in my mind, what I believe in my heart is the eternal weight of glory that goes beyond anything we can ask or imagine. You know what it is? Jesus. That's it. That's the reward. Him. His presence. His sufficiency. His grace. His love for all eternity. That's what's waiting for you. And that's the hope we need to see beyond the reality of our suffering. As we press to the end, 
and finish the race, hitting the tape running. So we're going to finish this morning with a song that I just want you to stay seated, sitting, and I want you to make these words a prayer. These are words that for some of you are going to be great reminders. And when you sing this refrain, it's going to echo in your heart because you know it's true. For others of you who feel like you're barely hanging on, this is going to be a reminder of a truth that you can cling to. And my prayer is that this song, and especially this refrain that we will sing together this morning, will echo and you'll find yourself singing it all week long as a reminder of what we've just talked about and God promises to be true through His Word. So let's sing that together and then we're going to introduce some folks before we leave this morning.